You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. What's up, aviation nerdation? Welcome to episode number seven of the Forever on the Fly podcast, your biweekly dose of aviation inspiration, education, and entertainment. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Diane Dalla. And I'm Jose. And we're here to get you guys hooked Hooked on on aviation. aviation. We've been really feeling the love from you all out there. Thank you so much for your support, your reviews, subscriptions, and downloads. It really keeps us rocking over here. Oh, man, the other day, I blew out my back at the gym, man, trying to get them gains. <laughs> it sucks. It sucks. It sucks when you have to go out there and fly and look for traffic. I kind of look like a robot, you know, like <laughs> turning my head to the left, looking for traffic to the right. That's like the worst when you can't turn your neck. Have you ever experienced that? No, I haven't. Oh, well, you're <laughs> lucky, man. <laughs> you, you must not be hitting gold like no, I have lately. Not, no, probably not. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, why don't you go ahead and introduce right, our yeah. next guest. Without, without further ado, our next guest has personally owned and operated the R66, the Bell 505, and recently upgraded to the EC130T2. He has first-hand experience on these products, as well as he can tell us the pros and cons to each of them. You guys might know him first and foremost as... At iFlyHelly on Instagram. I always say that one of the things I love most about aviation is its ability to bring good people together. And York is just one of those people you meet along the way in the industry that just shines his love for helicopters through and through. The nicest guy you'll ever meet. And he gets so excited to share his love for aviation with everyone he encounters. Just love the guy. Oh, yeah. Super cool, dude. He's here to chat about his recent switch to the EC-130T2 benefits of flying helicopters over airplanes don't worry we won't throw too much shade on you airplane cats <laughs> what happens when your original flight plan and weather briefing goes down the tube in this episode we really want to drive in the importance of recognizing that hazardous attitude that tells you that you can continue to fly when the weather starts going to crap and trying to stick to that original plan putting away that ego to make the decision to deviate from your original plan to land the helicopter safely and stick around at the end for a short lesson on choosing a suitable off-airport landing site. Let's do it. York Galland. With the golden hour, and it was just like this perfect storm. We like all felt it at the exact same time. Hi, I'm York Galland, and I'm forever on the fly. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us because, you know. I'm excited. Yay. (laughs) Uh, So York York and I met. He's super popular on Instagram. Everybody knows I fly heli. (laughs) And so I I had been following you for for quite a while um, before we actually met. And I was in Sedona with a couple of my girlfriends camping for my friend's birthday. You saw that I was in Sedona through one of my Instagram stories. Right. And, and you messaged me and you're like, hey, I'm in Sedona. <laughs> I was at a family reunion. Oh, and was yeah. looking for a, looking for a break. For a break. <laughs> I know. And so I'm like, well, what's what what's a couple of girls gotta do to get a ride around here? Just show up to the airport at sunset. Okay. And uh, yeah, so you ended up taking me and my friends up, some of my girlfriends who had never been in a helicopter before and just gave them this super magical experience flying over Sedona at sunset. Even to this day, I mean, I've been on, you know, hundreds, thousands of flights. And I mean, that was such a magical, that was such a magical flight. You made my friend cry. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah. You know, what's interesting about that. I, um, that one experience, in fact, I have a, I took a picture of her, uh, crying. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, was that, that if someone says, Hey, why, what do you love about flying? Why do you do it? I've got like a top 10, maybe lots of reasons, you know, to explore just the, the feeling of flight is amazing. Um, the view is incredible. Uh, the people you meet is top three for sure. But not only the people that you meet, but you're sharing this experience. I mean, Sedona, I'd never been there before. I mean, I'd only been there maybe half a day when I saw you there. And um, it was just a magical, it looks a little bit like Zion's. Mm-hmm. Just, a, just a magical geography and environment there. And then we had um, a new helicopter. It smelled good. Had yeah. the Bose headsets. I'm sure yeah. I had something... Um, I would call it magical. My son would call it majestical music going through it with the golden hour. And it was just like this perfect storm. And I could just, we like all felt it at the exact same time. I kind of just glanced back. wanted to see if you, I think you had two or three friends back there, but I wanted to see if they were having a good experience. And your one friend, I don't even remember her name. What's her name? Jade. Jade. Yeah. She was, she was like a combination of, like bawling and she was also <laughs> smiling like like ear to ear at the same time and yeah that was that was a great flight and that it is was. that is like the number one reason for flying a helicopter i don't have the same experience in an airplane yeah mm. you don't get that you painted a good picture brother i felt like i was there you know <laughs> good <laughs> we need to get you there actually, what we need to do i was actually the girl jade crying you just didn't know <laughs> disguised as a good looking girl <laughs> yeah you used to have long black hair i remember yeah, yeah i'm looking at you jose she was prettier than you for sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> well oh, that's okay man. i take that as a no, <laughs> I think you're pretty. I oh, appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're out there on Instagram sharing your adventures with everybody. You're a GoPro creator, which is awesome. I'm sure they get to send you all the newest, latest and greatest uh, equipment to shoot on. And I know any, anytime I meet somebody and you come up somehow and I'm like, oh yeah, I know York. We've flown a couple of times. They always go like, what the heck does that guy even do? <laughs> <laughs> that's the number one it's a, it's a mystery it's, it's a, a mystery, mystery. And i was like well i could ask you to tell everybody maybe you want to be shrouded in that mystery for a little bit longer i'm not sure <laughs> well i'll tell you what, i'll respond this way um i i do i do make some money flying but not near enough to justify it um my main source of income is is outside businesses mostly real estate Let's save that for another podcast on what I do. But it's kind of interesting um, because I feel like on my Instagram, I'm barely transparent with who I am mm-hmm. as far as, I mean, I put my family on it, my home's in it, um, uh, my friends are on it, um, my religion's on it, but I really don't talk a whole lot about my other businesses. And so it's just kind of weird that I've been able to keep that a little bit you know, bailed or not in the forefront. But meanwhile, I mean, that couldn't compete with some of the views I take with a yeah. GoPro and a helicopter. So um, 
Yeah, what does that guy do? He flies all day long. <laughs> you are literally always <laughs> flying, which, you know, is you know, the, uh, I guess, pinnacle or dream of any pilot out there. It's like, oh, yeah, someday, of course, I'd love to own my own helicopter and just be able to go heli camping and take all my friends and family out for pleasure runs. But hey, I will say this on that one note. I, I used to love the idea or the thought that if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. I think I've kind of changed my feelings about that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you have to feed your family based on this thing that you love, um, you, I think it taints the experience sometimes, um, might even cause a little bit of resentment towards this thing that you love if it's not feeding your family. And so, um, I, I, I was kind of different. I worked really hard when I was younger, flew very little, didn't get into ownership until, you know, really into my forties. And, um, and now I do what I love and I don't have to feed my family, um, by doing it. So, um, that's just the thought. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it can be a hard business making money in aviation. It can be. Heck, man, I, I feel like I'm one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's something that always comes up is have a backup plan because flying is what a, it's a privilege, not a right. And it can be taken away from you if you don't have a backup plan, another way to make income and you lose your right. medical or anything substantial like that, then where are you? Yeah. So but yeah, that's kind of what I'm facing right now going into my 30s. I'm 30 wonderful, but I'm in my 30s already. But now in, in my adulthood, it's um, kind of one of those things. Hey, hey, isn't that 30th year a tough one? Do you feel like officially you're an adult? It was hard for me. Yeah. And no, I was actually excited for my 30s. I, I think, you know, my 20s, I got to do a lot of cool stuff. But I mean, my 30s, this is where I'm starting to see the fruits of all of my labor from my 20s and getting to this yeah. point. Um, so now I'm actually really enjoying so far. Yeah. So far, so good. It's a good decade. Enjoy it. Yeah. But that's ultimately, I think that's true. I mean, I'm, I've been guilty of saying, you know, if you do what you love, you never have to work a day in your life. And yeah, some days it feels like that. Yeah. I get to do the coolest job in the world and I don't really feel like I'm working because I get to fly my friends or, or whatever, doing a, a cool mission. But yeah, I think when I was building my flight time and flying all day, every day, it's, it's work. It's <laughs> it is work. It is. Definitely work. There is no doubt about that part. 120 degrees in the Grand Canyon yeah, day after day, it's work. Serving champagne. At no the bueno. No <laughs> bueno, man. You know, especially when you're talking to the French, love you, Esther. When you, <laughs> you know, and you tell them that the best wine comes from California. Mind blown. <laughs> Boom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can picture it. So you I can imagine. Passengers' heads explode. <laughs> yeah, could imagine. So you recently made the switch from the Bell 505 up to an EC-130. Now, is that a T2 or is it a B4? It's a T2. It's so it's a 2014 um, T2. Um, and I think whatever's been changed since 2014 is being upgraded right now in a shop in Canada, but it's the T2. So I did make the change, um, in the summer. What prompted the, I mean, I would say upgrade for sure. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, um, l- let me answer that by backing up just a little bit. Right. So I, I have, I have personally owned and flew the heck out of an R44, an R66, a 505, and now an H132. And so that's kind of my experience. Um, I've put a number of hours uh, on a 125 or an A-star. Um, I've done a little bit of Jet Ranger. But for the most part, those four helicopters have been um, my experience. So that's kind of what I have to compare things to. So it was kind of a, I thought it was a nice um, incremental graduation you know, own something for three or four years and then kind of move up to something that's a little bit bigger, a little more powerful, um, a better performance. So um, that was kind of the path that I chose when I really started flying a lot, maybe 15 years ago. I do fixed wing as well. Do not enjoy it. I do it when I need to. I've done the whole corporate thing, um, business jets, uh, that grind. Um, There's, yeah, I do it when I have to. I love flying helicopters but to your point why did i switch from a 505 to a t2 um i think the bigger question that most people might have is why did i switch from a 505 to a t2 and maybe not a 125 mm-hmm. um or even even in, even an a star like a b2 or something yeah, yeah. and um i think it all comes back to what like my personal missions are and i think it's important when you're looking at you know, a helicopter um, to really identify what your goal is with it and what your mission with it is. Um, maybe something that everyone can relate to is is buying a car. I mean, it's it's um, it's a mistake to buy a car um, for five um, percent of why you'll be using it. For example, you know, I'm going to get a four wheel drive car because I might be going up to Mammoth you know, once a year, you want to buy a car that meets 90% of your needs. You don't want to buy a car that meets 5% of your needs and sacrifices the other 90%, right? Yeah. It makes um, sense. yeah. I mean, you, uh, I mean, you should buy a car that fills, um, your needs exactly. And I think a lot of times, you know, first buyers make a mistake there. Well, um, I would say the same thing's true with the helicopter. Um, I don't do firefighting. I don't do long lining. Um, I don't do law enforcement. Um, I, I don't do um, forestry. If I did, I would have an A-star, 100%. I mean, they are the top performer. Um, they are super powerful, right? Yeah. And um, you can attach anything to an A-star. Try, I defy you, try to find a utility arm for a 505. Yeah, that's not going to Just happen. now you can get a couple things you can attach to an R66 or an R44, but you can attach anything to an A-star. Um, so <laughs> I will say uh, he, he's too kind to beat me up too much about it, but um, one of my mentors and just an amazing pilot named Chris Smith, he's flown there quite a bit in LA, um, but he, he it just rubs him wrong every time I buy something besides a star. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, mean, I, I was always kind of curious why. Well, I remembered when I asked you, um, you know, the the fuel economy that you got from the 505 versus an A star, the price point on it and everything. Those arguments are gone though with the T2. T2 yeah. is more expensive. So look, my main mission is um why I might do a little bit of work 
Um, most of it is um, for doing a collaboration or just for personal flight. And uh, for me, like the number one important thing is the ride and the view, period. R66 has an amazing view. The Bell 505 has an amazing view. And the T2 has the very best view. And an A-star has a marginal view yep. up front. If you're the pilot, it's almost like an airplane. It has a terrible view if you're sitting in the back. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten sat in the back. I'm like, no, I don't like this. I'm getting sick. You can't, you, know, you have to like bend your head down to see out the windows, right? And so that alone was a deal killer for me. And so if my main mission is exploring or sightseeing and doing it with family or friends, um, the the 505 actually was a great aircraft for that. And the T2 um, is even a better aircraft for that because you can get more friends yeah, in a okay. T2 than you can in a 505. You know, I will say in answering your question also, people really want me to compare like a, you know, the Bell product to the Airbus product. Um, I've owned Robinson Bell and Airbus, and um, they have all actually been really good aircraft for me. There's been things I've loved about every one of the aircraft. Um, you know, if you talk about that, you know, we talked about cars. Um, there's, you know, if there was one car that fit every need, it'd probably be a minivan, except for it's missing a soul. So you can't, you know, own a minivan. <laughs> Dang. I would say the R66 <laughs> does a pretty good job of being the one machine that does it all okay. I mean, look, you can put full fuel, five people, and land pretty high mm -hmm. um, in that thing. It will fly for over three hours nonstop. The two front seats have great views. Two of the back seats are okay. Are okay. Um, I hate the turbine lag in that thing, um, but it's a minivan to me. It's kind of lacking that soul. Um, the 505 is, is just the next step up. It has that flat platform. It, it, it is modernized. It's pretty cool to have all your engine instruments integrated into that Garmin 1000. Um, the views really are incredible in that 505. Yep. Um, uh, testified by the tears and grins <laughs> of your friends who are sitting in the back seats. Um, and it's, you know, where, where R66 might burn 20 gallons an hour of jet fuel, really 30 on the 505. And really, I might burn 48 on the T2. You're never just going full throttle on that thing. Um, so there is that difference. Um, but the 505 um, was a pretty good attempt at creating one machine that will do it all. It honestly did okay. It did pretty good. There's a couple things I'll just say that they really got to step up on are those doors. The doors are horrible. They're super flimsy. They're yeah. flimsy. Flim and, and you can't open them in flight, obviously. They're not easy to take off. At least in a Robinson, you can pop them off. Pop them off and, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did, you, um, did you like the aesthetic of the 505? Because the one thing I hear from so many people, which I personally thought it's a decent-looking helicopter, but I know a lot of people are like, oh, the 505 is just ugly. <laughs> well, I would say well, I, I'm guilty of that. I, I will say, yes. hey, and God bless everybody at uh, Bell. Yes. But um, yeah, I just think it's horrendous looking. 
Well, you know, in part, there's a reason for that. Because, you know, when anything's made by committee, which it kind of was, I think they really consulted with a lot of engineers and pilots and people in the industry on, hey, how do we create something for everyone? And what you end up with is, you know, something that was designed by committee. And so it's rarely beautiful. I will say, though, that I think um, my red Bell 505 with the tall and longer skids, I thought that looked good. Yeah, I thought, yours, you, I thought yours looked pretty damn good. Yeah. And then you throw a couple really good photographers like Aaron Brimhall or Mike Biggins at it, and they can make it look really good too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so, but to the A star, sorry, but to the T2, um, it is everything that the Bell is, but more refined, more powerful, um, uh, uh, more seats, bigger views. Bigger but you pay for it. Yeah, bigger engine. You know, yeah, I was going to say, you like took the words right out of my mouth, amigo. Um, as far as like the mission, of, I just think that you're right for what you're trying to do and for the amount of horsepower that T2 pulls out, it's almost double of what the 505 puts out. So just in that aspect alone, I think it's worth it. And then the theater seating that you get yep. in the EC130 or the H130. Um, I think it, I, I, I personally think you made a good choice. Yeah, I think thank you. The only thing people also say when you're if you're talking about buying a T2 versus an A star is just the resale. You know, how, if you're ever planning on turning around and getting rid of it someday, then because the 125 H125 is so versatile in the industry and everybody yep. uses it across the board, it's just a lot easier to resell it later on down the road versus an EC130, which is pretty much only used by tour companies which we all know what's happened with that industry <laughs> lately. Yeah. Tor, tour companies and, and private owners. And private owners. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Agreed. But you just got um, your beautiful new paint job, your, your orange. Is that, um, <laughs> is there a certain... So actually, no. My 505, did you call it a orange? Like a reddish orange? Orange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, is it like so sunrise, action. sunrise orange, or what? What did it say on the color swash? <laughs> I forget, but I will say on the T two, I told Eurotech Canada, who they are amazing. That's a little plug for them. They've been so great to work with. I said I want Ferrari red, and I really don't want it to be orange. But what we ended up going with is uh, something that's a, a little bit better. It's Ashley red. Ooh, Ashley red. Ashley. That does sound. Yeah, better. there is a quick story behind that. Um, a Kodiak, which I fly, has a nice detail stripe, the tail. And um, Mark Brown, who's Kodiak's uh, head, uh, his chief, their chief pilot, he kind of, I think, designs whatever the demonstrator is going to be. Uh, and I bought a demo uh, aircraft from him. Um, his, his wife, who's an amazing pilot as well, um, she, her name's Ashley. And he tells me that he chose Ashley Red, which is an actual color, um, paying homage to his wife. So I thought it was appropriate. And so we, I ended up going with that color and it does look absolutely amazing. It's stunning. Yeah. I saw so on your Instagram story. Oh my gosh. It's yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> I, can't wait, I can't wait to come out there and fly with you. Cause you know, 
I, I invite myself to go fly with York all the time. I'm like, so by the way, a like, couple months from now, like, I think I'm going to make a trip up to Provo. Are you going to keep... Take notes, Jose. That's the best way to do it. You just got to work squeaky wheel. <laughs> I know. That's, <laughs> just got to keep bugging people until they say yes. It's kind of been, you know, my, my grind. It's just poking at people on Instagram. Hey, hey, what's up? Can I go fly with you? Can I go fly with you? Eventually they say yes. You know, the- Hey, th- there's, there's a phrase for what you are. Diane, it's um, pleasantly persistent. Oh, I love that. It goes a long way. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an important skill. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to toe the line between being pleasantly persistent and annoying. And annoying. I try not to veer off. Into I'm on the, the opposite end of that. Yeah. Annoyingly persistent. <laughs> Annoyingly persistent. Hey, Jose, that gets, that gets things done. No, no, no I'm talking for too. Diane when she talks to me. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> Thanks, Jose. That means you're real friends. Oh, question. Does your new T2 have crash-proof fuel tanks? Well, I guess... Wait, do all the T2s? They do. All the the T2s have the crash-proof. All the T2s have them, yep. That's right. They have the... um, The bladders. The bladders with the detachable uh, fuel hose nozzle. What do you call it? Were Uh, were you not going to fly with me if it didn't have it? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just, I was just you see curious. Her fade and, away. I, and then I just remember, yep. <laughs> backing away now, backing away. No, hey, that is an good. expensive upgrade to, to the B4, though. That's was a hard thing like to do. Like 100 grand or something? I don't know. I didn't have and to do it, but I just know feet. that it's people have done it. It's not cheap or easy. As you know, I'm a fixed swing um, as well as rotor. And uh, I think I already bagged on fixed wing enough. <laughs> I'm saying that it is boring and it kind of is. Um, but the, the one thing that I have loved about um, it, just the peace of mind about flying a helicopter um, is its ability to ultimately land anywhere. Do is to fly a helicopter like you fly a plane. I fly between Salt Lake City and John Wayne all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the spots where you can land and uh, take a bathroom break or take a picnic or or leave in the afternoon. And, you know, it's a four hour flight four and a half hour flight or um, camp halfway there. Um, but more importantly, like flying up to, fly up to Canada all the time, uh, no matter what kind of weather planning you do, man, there's always problems. But in a helicopter, I don't stress about it because I always keep enough gear on. For, you know, for myself or if I have passengers to stay the night somewhere, um, you know, in a forest. Well, hopefully not a forest because there's lots of trees. Um, <laughs> but somewhere, hey, <laughs> hey, even in a parking lot if you needed to. Um, but the peace of mind of being able to set down mm-hmm. and um, safely and to weather something out is a big deal. And so I will say there's been, oh, dozens of times where I've done that. And sometimes I've even kind of planned on it. It's like, hey, I'm going to have to set down somewhere. Yeah. I just know looking at the weather, but there was one time I was actually headed down to do um, a in Southern Utah to do a photo shoot. And truly I checked the weather. Um, it was looking good. And by the time I got down to, and it was Southern Utah, there's never rain, but I found myself uh, 30 minutes away from uh, it becoming dark. Sun had gone down um, <clears throat> and the storm clouds just moved in around me. And I started looking around. I was by myself because the job was the next morning. And I'm thinking, 
there's no really safe way to go through this right now. And I'm also, um, you know, in an area where there, um, there wasn't like a road even. And so I'm like, you know what? Um, I'm in unrestricted BLM. There's a pinnacle right below me. When I say a pinnacle, I'm talking like 50 feet across and, you know, a thousand foot drop all the way around. Oh, like, man. That's it's my not, spot. That's pinnacle, all right. And so I sat down on that. I, I sat down there and um, I secured the helicopter and it raged the storm for four or five hours. I mean, I have a tent. I didn't set it up because it would have been a mess. It probably would have blown off or blown me off of the cliff. But I just kind of hunkered down in my helicopter. I think I had a season of something on my iPad. And um, it just raged and rained so hard. And then I have a picture on my Instagram. It's my, my favorite picture. About 2 a.m., the clouds broke. And I got out with my camera. And I took this picture. You can't see that I'm on a pinnacle. It just looks like I'm in space floating. But just the Milky Way was right there, surrounded by these clouds. And I was like, yeah, wow. this is why I fly a helicopter. You know, I thought of when you were talking about landing in a parking lot. I could only imagine um, I'm at Walmart or something and I see a helicopter <laughs> out on the parking lot with the tent. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, but painted is Ashley that, red. <laughs> is that Ashley red? That's Ashley red. <laughs> <laughs> I know that guy. So what about your experience flying in the L.A. basin and the constantly changing weather that we have out here, the marine layers that come in? It can be unpredictable sometimes. I think there's probably been four or five times over about the 10 years I was flying there where um, I said, no, you know, I'm going to go sit down at Burbank or Van Nuys or whatever, Camarillo, and um, and put my passengers on an Uber, send them back down to Orange County. And, um, that is, that's a pretty cool option. I think it's like, ah, can I make it back to Camarillo even? It's even, you know, the, got all those power lines going over that 405 there. It's like, uh, and you're thinking, okay, if I got to sit down in a parking lot, you know, which one would I pick? And I think we all have this kind of fear of landing in a Walmart. The police show up, firemen show up, the news shows up. And then they start asking questions like, Okay, so why did you land here? Well, because I got weathered out. Did you check the weather before you left? I did, and it looked like it was doable. It's like, what does that mean? So you start going through these. For me, it's always like, what happens when the reporters show up? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But you know what? Fire Two things. Actions. Two things. It doesn't matter if you're alive. You can deal with any of those questions of like, I guess I didn't have enough fuel, or maybe I didn't look at the weather closely enough. But man, to say, and the industry... I really feel like the industry would protect and defend a pilot who who decided to land and live, even if it were in a Walmart parking lot. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. And and it's as long as like you know you're not causing any hazard to people on the ground. If you can find a sure. space, obviously, weather changes so drastically sometimes, especially in the LA basin, where what do you call it? Marine layer. <laughs> the marine layer yes. will move in super quickly before you even realize it. You know, and if you're flying minute, at night, you don't see it coming in. Yeah, like one minute it's completely VFR, next minute it's it may not be 200 foot vertical visibility over Santa Monica, and like you yep. can't get off the pad at UCLA. But and that's not necessarily always forecasted either. Um, nope. those things moving in. So, well, I can tell you that the uh, at least once a year, if I 
purposely choose to make the decision to land and not make it to my destination. Um, I always try to like, at least put it on my story mm-hmm. kind of as, Hey guys, it's okay. If the best laid plans and the best flight planning and weather briefs and fuel plans didn't work out like you expected, um, didn't work out for me today. I'm here. I'm in the desert and I'm going to spend the night here. And when it passes in the morning, I'm going to continue. I try to, when I have those experiences, um, to, you know, kind of make it public. Promote I think it's it, good. Yeah. It's not, good. That's not a mistake. It's a success. No, that's a good decision-making right there. And that's promoting getting rid of your ego. <laughs> yep. That, that's in the back of your head saying, you know, oh, if I land here, what are people going to say that I didn't do a good flight plan or a good weather brief or like that macho attitude, not listening to those, ha- not succumbing to those hazardous attitudes and just putting the ego away and just putting the thing down and waiting it out. I mean, it would happen all the time at Papillon. Like when we were doing our uh, Grand Canyon tours, monsoon season was crazy. Oh yeah. You know, you'd get coming in out of nowhere and we'd have four helicopters landing in the parking lot down at, um, by the Colorado river because there's lightning all around and you know, everyone's, and, and you're not that far from Boulder city right there by the river, but someone sees some lightning strike really close by everyone's just putting it down and the company will back you 100% of the way. There's no shame, no shame. It's better that everyone's not a dead. (laughs) Going back to your, like what you were saying about like, sometimes you might have the best plan and it doesn't quite work out when I was flying in the regionals. I can't tell you how many times we had deviations because of a thunderstorm cells that were, you know, a lot bigger than they were uh, forecasted to be. Right. Or uh, certain things come up. And next thing you know, we have two alternates and we're just trying to navigate the storm system. So um, it it totally makes sense. Sometimes you do the well, the best plan is adaptability. Agreed. Yep. 100%. Well put. That was really wise. <laughs> you're like you act, surpri- you act surprised. <laughs> I know. She's like, oh, you're like looking at me, like, like who, who are you? <laughs> I joke around a lot. Yeah. Sometimes, no. sometimes she looks at me and is like, "What? <laughs> Where did that come from, Mister Socrates?" <laughs> oh, oh man. Well, thank you so much for sharing, York. I, I really appreciate, again, you coming on here and taking the time to talk with us and sharing your experiences. I know that, um, you know, somewhere out there, there's a pilot who really needed to hear that today. So, oh, well, good. Well, hey, it's always nice to talk with you and hang with you. And Jose, nice to meet you. you we'll, have to all, we'll all three go flying together. One of oh, these man, times. that'd be awesome, brother. Yeah. That'd be awesome. So, cool. Sooner the better. The sooner, the better is right, York. I cannot wait to come out there and check out your new EC-130. Looks beautiful. Eurotech Canada looks like they did an amazing job. Can't wait. And you know we're going to hold you to that. All right. If you're still with us, thank you so much for sticking around for the last little bit here. Jose was unable to stick around, unfortunately, for this little ground school session. But that's all right. I got you guys. Don't worry. So let's talk about a couple of things from this episode. Now, if you're already a pilot, you're already a trained up pilot, this is 
always a good review to just get everyone thinking about these again. And if you're a brand new pilot or not a pilot at all, this will be all new information for you. So that's exciting. All right. So during this episode, we talked a little bit about making the decision to deviate from an original flight plan to land the helicopter safely if the weather went to crap or you didn't perform a proper weather brief. Well, first of all, just want to drive in. Make sure you guys out there are covering your butts, man. Just get a proper weather brief, one that is actually recorded. So we want to make sure that we're doing this so that it is logged just in case you did end up having to land in that Walmart parking lot and you have to explain yourself. You want to be able to prove to the FAA that you, in fact, did your due diligence and you got a proper weather briefing. So there's a couple of ways that you can do this, right? One of my absolute favorites is calling the number 1-800-WX-BRIEF, where your friendly neighborhood flight service briefer will give you a thorough weather brief and NOTAM rundown for your flight. And this has always been my preferred method to supplement a textual weather brief. Um, They decipher briefs all day, every day. You know, like they're weather people. This is what they do. They're going to be able to really offer you some great insight to help with your go or no go decision. You can also supplement that with 1-800-WXBRIEF.com where you can create an account and get your weather brief on there. And if you have an account, it's going to record it. That's going to back you up. And you can also, if you have ForeFlight, you've got an iPad, you can get your weather brief on there. That also records it as well. And the FAA also suggests that you use aviationweather.gov. But unfortunately, aviationweather.gov does not actually record that you got a weather briefing from them. So you're going to have to supplement aviationweather.gov with one of the things I just mentioned above. So just to review, aviationweather.gov is not an approved source. So 1-800-WX-BRIEF or call the phone number 1-800-WX-BRIEF. You can also get a flight briefing uh, on ForeFlight. All right, let's just say you were a good little pilot and you got yourself a weather briefing and you go fly expecting the weather to be good in VFR. And all of a sudden, it's not anymore, which happens. And sometimes we're near an airport and we can deviate from our plan. We can go to an airport safely. Sometimes we find ourselves like York landing on top of a pinnacle in the middle of Utah where maybe there's not any really good places to land and you kind of have to do what you, uh, you got to work with what you got. So... So just a quick rundown of the hazardous attitudes that pilots may face for people out there who are unfamiliar. They are anti-authority, impulsivity, invulnerability, macho, and resignation. And I would say if any pilot out there claims that they have never succumbed to one of these hazardous attitudes, they are absolutely lying. We're all vulnerable to them. But the important part is being able to recognize when we're experiencing them and the antidote that we can have in the back of our head in order to fight it and make good decisions out there. And I would say that if you're flying along and you're experiencing the weather changing for the worse and you're trying to decide whether or not you're going to put the helicopter down in the middle of nowhere or continue your flight or deviate, we might be subject to machoism. I can do it. The antidote to that is taking chances is foolish. And I would say that nobody can really argue with that. But, you know, our ego gets in the way sometimes, but... 
If you start noticing that little spidey sense in the back of your neck that's telling you that you should put it down and you start telling yourself, no, I can do it. Maybe you should start thinking to yourself, you know what? Taking chances is foolish. I'm going to put the helicopter down just to be on the safe side. And I would say another hazardous attitude in the situation that we might fall victim to is invulnerability. It won't happen to me. Well, no, it could happen to you. Definitely could happen to you. It could happen to any of us. Doesn't matter how experienced we are. We are all vulnerable to going inadvertent IMC and bad things happening. So if you start noticing that you're telling yourself that, you know what? It's never happened to me. It won't happen to me. Just think to yourself, no, it could happen to me. I need to err on the side of caution and put the helicopter down. Now you've made the executive decision to put the helicopter down and you're looking for an off airport landing site. Let's say you're in the middle of nowhere and you are unable to deviate to an airport. Could be a pinnacle, could be a confined area, or if you're lucky, you got some wide open spaces. Options. We love good options. But let's just say no matter where you're landing, you still have to do a proper high and low reconnaissance of the area to make sure it's a proper and suitable place for you to put the helicopter down. So in flight school, we learn all of these different acronyms and they're supposed to be helping us organize things in our brain and sometimes they just made absolutely no sense like flot wheat or s-s-s-s-s-s-s-w-a-t so for me i used the swat method through flight school jose used flot wheat but we're just going to go through the swat method it's quick it's easy so we're going to be establishing a high reconnaissance at 500 feet 60 knots and we're going to do an orbit around the landing zone. So the six S's stands for size, shape, surface. We want to check out the surface of the um, area. Sometimes on a high reconnaissance, it's kind of hard to tell what the surface is like. So these things we're also going to double check on our low reconnaissance. Um, we want to see if it's loose dirt, hard packed dirt, snow. These are the things that we're going to be looking for. Slope, we want to see if there's um, a slope that might be too much for the helicopter to handle if it's beyond its limitations. Surroundings, we're checking for power lines and obstacles and terrain and cows. <laughs> Where I learned how to fly, there were so many cows in our practice area. We always had to watch out for those guys. Sun is the last S and one that I think gets overlooked a lot. Definitely when you're coming in to land in a spot, know where the sun is. You don't want that sun in your face. It can be completely blinding and you can't see anything. And W stands for wind. You are checking the direction and the speed of the wind. And we're figuring that in our orbit. There's lots of different ways to figure out where the wind is coming from. Your ground speed versus your indicated as you're orbiting. Uh, you can find flags or blowing trees or smoke or ripples on water, depending on where you're at. A is your abort plan. You want to figure out if you have to go around or you're on your approach and you're doing your low reconnaissance and you deem that the place is no longer suitable to land, where are you going to fly off to? You're going to pull in your power, you're going to go around and hopefully you have a path out that is free of obstacles. So now that you've determined that you're going to land there, you get on your final approach and you're kind of running through the checklist in an abbreviated version on final. You're getting a closer look. You're seeing the slope. You're seeing the surface a little bit more clear now that you're coming down a lot lower. 
and you can determine if you're going to go around or if you're going to continue the approach and put your skids down. T is your touchdown point. Where are you going to put your skids? So this is a very textbook method, very textbook method. In reality, you're going to gain experience and you're going to find out that these acronyms are actually missing a couple of crucial things like your path in, your path out, doing a power check. Those things are really important as well. Uh, Turbulence, if you're flying in a mountainous region, you want to know and determine where the mountain waves are going to be coming from. You're worried about updrafts and downdrafts. There's all these different things that you're also thinking about. But all of those things also come with experience and doing these things practically. So this is just a really quick guideline of things that we're looking for when we're doing our high and low reconnaissance. And hey, if anybody out there has a better method or a way of doing things that you think would be really helpful, go ahead and share that with us. Send us an email, foreveronthefly at gmail.com. You guys, this was so fun going back and reviewing this stuff. I hope if you're already a pilot and you listened to this and you stuck around until the end, I hope you got a good review just like I did. It's all the basic stuff that you learn at the beginning, but kind of becomes automatic as you go through your career. So always really good to review and go back to your basics. Just a nice little reminder. And uh, if you're not a pilot, hopefully you found this interesting enough to stick around to the end of the episode with me. And thank you so much for sticking it out and listening in. I hope you guys have a beautiful rest of your day and fly safe out there. (laughs) 